Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. It is Saturday, May the 27th, 2023, and this is part two of a, uh, I think, perhaps ongoing discussion with Vance of MyLatinLife.com fame. And we're going to have a bit of supplementary discussion about just organizing the day-to-day finances if you're a remote worker or a similar sort of person. So, Vance, welcome back. Thank you. How are you today? Doing well, thank you. I'm, I'm glad we uh, made time for this part two because I think it's a, a really interesting topic that we're, we're going to get into and something that would affect all Americans abroad. So thanks uh, for the time to discuss with such an well, expert as, as yourself. My pleasure. This is really interesting. Well, why don't... Uh... Why don't we begin with uh, your thoughts and why do you, and what is it we're talking about and why is this important? Yeah, sure. So um, as a little bit of background, I may or may not be a Canadian-American dual citizen. And so I, I do have to deal with the issues of being an American abroad, largely living in Latin America and, and living the digital nomad expat life, right? And at this point in time, for a digital nomad or someone less established, they're probably going to, as an American, they're probably going to keep all of their assets in the U.S., right? They're going to have their U.S. bank accounts, their U.S. ETFs, their debit cards. Uh, maybe they have some other assets in the States. Maybe they have a rental house, whatever it is, right? But as you transition from being a digital nomad to a full-time expat living abroad, whether it be Mexico or Italy or or anywhere else, you start sort of integrating more into that local economy. And so you're in Italy, maybe you want to buy a car in Italy, maybe you want to invest in uh, a house or invest in a local business and a local Asta manufacturing plant, right, in Italy, <laughs> something like that. And so that's when you start tripping all of these uh tax implications, right? Because it's when you're investing in that local economy. And as an American, we know that we're taxed on a worldwide income, right? Um, and that was sort of fine as a, a digital nomad, because we only had one system that we were uh, providing tax returns for, which is, you know, just our annual US tax return. But now when you start full-time living abroad, maybe you have a wife and kids abroad, you're investing in that local economy abroad, you have a much, much more complicated uh, uh, kind of holistic situation where you're probably going to have to be filing a local tax return. And let's call it Italy. I, I like the idea of Italy. I'm actually headed there tomorrow. So um, you're going to be having a much more complicated tax situation where you're going to have to file an Italian tax return and then there's treaties and then you get a, a foreign tax credit to the U.S. and all this stuff. So it makes it a lot more complicated. And I think there's a lot of issues that affect Americans uh, living full time abroad as expats that they might not have as uh, digital nomads that are less established in any one country abroad. Yeah, well, uh, sir, you know, obviously you're, you know, not a hundred percent, but a thousand percent right on that. Um, okay, so let's uh, separate uh, reporting requirements from, you know, from taxation. Okay, mm -hmm. um, 
Now, as you're probably aware, one of the realities of American citizenship uh, is that the Internal Revenue Code uh, requires American citizens, you know, frankly, to report, you know, on any aspect of their life pretty much that's that's non-U.S. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you're aware of the um, what used to be called the FBAR, the FinCEN 114, where if an American citizen has a bank or financial accounts outside the United States with an aggregate balance of 10,000 U.S. or more at any time of the year, you know, they have to file this form, uh, at, you know, or if they have foreign financial assets above, uh, you know, if, if they meet the test of being an American abroad, 200,000, possibly even 50,000 depending on, uh, you know, how they view themselves. That's another form mm -hmm. and interaction with uh, creating a non-U.S. corporation is another form or a non-U.S. trust. I mean, you know, the national anthem of America in the 21st century is, frankly, when it comes to anything foreign, report early, report often, report everything, and keep a record of what you report. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be subject to massive penalties. Now, you know, you're talking about uh, a remote worker, digital nomad. Um, it may very well be that it makes the most sense for somebody like that to keep their, um, uh, you know, their uh, credit cards, their bank accounts, you know, in the United States to avoid. Yeah, which is what which is what I do. I use a. 0% uh, foreign transaction fee credit card, an American credit card. I use American debit cards. And then anywhere around the world, we just pull money out of the ATM. I have debit cards that have a zero uh, ATM fee. So it's actually free to pull money out of the ATM. And you can, you can typically pull out like a pretty good amount, like easily over a thousand bucks a month. And so that could be used to pay your rent or just any kind of expenses if you're in a more cash-based society. And so you can, you can usually get away, like even like full-time expats often get away with that where they're just using U.S. credit cards and they're pulling cash out of the ATM if need be. And if you need even more, you know, you can maybe do Western Union or maybe yeah. have a local, like you know, we have mul multiple credit cards, you know, yeah, uh, yeah, or something so, like that. And I think that, um, multiple debit cards, this yeah. is not something, you know, as you know, that's, you know, part of my world, particularly because, you know, most of my client base would be, you know, people who actually live, you know, completely reintegrated in other countries. But I, I do think that, that this is absolutely correct that, you know, we've talked previously about, uh, maybe we should, you know, go over that again, how to use the foreign earned income exclusion, right, you know, to uh, severely minimize U.S. taxation. Uh, and yeah. then we get out of the reporting requirements by just keeping everything U.S. centric, right? So, uh, yeah. And so you and, and so what we uh, discussed actually on, on the episode of the My Latin Life podcast where you guessed it was that keeping all of you, you made the argument that keeping all of your assets and financial center of life in the U.S. was unrealistic for or just not the case for most Americans abroad. It's and unrealistic I, for those who become tax residents of other countries. I mean, I think that's what trips trips the balance here. Right. So let's focus on that. Uh, so 
again, you know, we t we've talked about the fact that for the remote work or digital no man. Yeah, that's easy. That's easy. Yeah, you know, that, the thing is like, that's easy. They're not going to typically be typically they're going to try to avoid becoming tax residents of, of another country. I think it's probably the name of the game. For sure. For sure. That's a lot of what we talk about. Tax residency is not <laughs> a presumptively good thing. Yeah. Unless, unless. Okay, you know, you can use it as a treaty tie break to get out of a less favorable tax residency, but that's a different topic. All right, so let's say that, you know, you, uh, you know, you decide your digital nomad days are over, your remote worker days are over, you settle down in another country, and you, you become a tax resident. Now, tax residency means that you're subject to the full force of you know, taxation by that country, uh, whatever that may mean. Um, and there's a whole, and countries are different, okay? They're definitely different, um, different rules. And, and these are not complicated rules, okay, to figure out. But, you, you know, you do have to know what they are. But one of the things about tax systems is that they're no longer just about tax. You know, they're about financial planning. They're about retirement planning and things like that. Yeah. So once you, I mean, let's imagine, for example, that a U.S. citizen goes to, say, Canada, all right? Yeah. Uh, you know, which I understand for your group is probably not their first choice, but it's a good example in the sense that they move to Canada, they're going to use the Canadian tax system, uh, you know, in a variety of ways, right? They might uh, get what's called an RSP, a registered retirement savings plan or tax-free savings account. And they might set up a small business corporation because, you know, those really double as pensions in Canada. And this is true for, you know, for other countries as well. But I'm just, you know, talking about the stuff, you know, that I'm most literate on. Now, you know, once you do that, right, your financial center of gravity is no longer the United States. All right. You know, it becomes Canada or another country. And you know, you're, once once your life becomes centric in that country from a tax residence and, you know, a financial retirement planning point of view, I think that, you know, uh, keeping your financial life sort of U.S. centric is probably not realistic. What what makes it unrealistic? Well, I think the difficulty perhaps in a credit rating. So building credit in the new country? Certainly, certainly, you know, is going to be is going to be a factor. Um, you know, you're going to be building banking relationships, you know, to get a mortgage, perhaps. You know, you're I mean, just just the sheer fact of uh, using the tax system in another country is going to incentivize and force you into having a financial blueprint in that country isn't it in some ways yeah it's 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 an interesting trade-off because you, you could may be maybe some of it in the u.s i mean nothing's going to keep you from you right, know you could keep have, having that 401k in the u.s and contributing to that in the u.s every year well right? but, you know that may or may not be true actually Okay, and, and that's a, I mean, theoretically, that's okay. But again, if you're a dual tax resident, okay, uh, you're filing taxes in Canada as your primary home. You're also filing a U.S. tax return. Uh, 
Now, there are different ways of filing U.S. tax returns, right? If you use the foreign earned income exclusion, for example, that opens the door to your being able to have, I think, effectively a TFSA. But what it also does is I believe we close the door to, uh, uh, you know, a 401k type of thing, you know, et cetera, right? So, you know, it's like what well, one tax system giveth, the other taketh. Um, now, another point I would make on this uh, is that it's very, particularly because the U.S. system is so complicated, it's very easy to think only in terms of the U.S. system. But, you know, Canada's got foreign asset reporting rules that are fairly penalty laden as well. Mm. You know, so you're going to have that level of reporting. And, uh, you know, they're, they're nasty. All right, they're nasty. Um, now, I think that... You know, I think the reality here is is sort of sort of in between, not totally one way or the other. But it does seem to me that if you're going to move, integrate into another country, do your financial planning through the tax system of that country, the tax incentive plans, etc., you're going to have to have some financial presence in that country. I mean, I think it's just inevitable. Uh, may not totally, all right, but. You know, any kind of financial presence seems to me that you're not going to be able to just, you know, rely on your U.S. credit cards and that sort of stuff. But it doesn't mean you get rid of all of them either. All right. Another point I would make, interestingly, is this, that um, what a lot of financial planners report, you know, there's a whole ecosystem of financial planners who specialize in nothing but U.S. clients because of these rules is that, you know, for certain brokerage firms and that, uh, you know, once they find out you're living in Canada, they're going to collapse the account. It's true. Yeah, and some are more some are more friendly than others. Yeah, I mean, they vary, right? They vary. Uh, now, I think it would be an interesting project. Uh, you know, I'd be happy to sort of collaborate on that with you to some degree, but I think an interesting project would be to what extent uh, can somebody who becomes a tax resident of another country, and if, if as a U.S. citizen you're a dual tax resident, you know, to what extent uh, would you be able to, uh, you know, keep everything going in the U.S. to the exclusion of that other country? Definitely simplify reporting. Yeah, absolutely it does. I mean, I think that's one. Well, it simplifies the reporting from a U.S. point of view. It may recreate, uh, create reporting from the point of view of the other country, like Canada, for example. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then, you know, you've got the whole, you know, you talk about, you know, I, had, I actually had this discussion with somebody recently. Um, you know, so you talk about, uh, well, here was the context of the discussion. Somebody came to me and said, and by the way, I'm not 100% sure of the answer to this. I was just thinking out loud, but said to me, well, you know, I'm having a problem with my U.S. taxes by using a French corporation in France. You know, these are these <laughs> who could. So, so she said to me, well, I think what I'm going to do is set up my stuff in the U.S. Well, okay. But all of a sudden now you've created a foreign corporation from the perspective of France, right? Yep. You know, and they and they have these rules as yeah, well. That's interesting. So, you know, as always, I'm not sure there's a hundred percent hard and fast rule on this. 
But the dividing line very definitely is becoming a tax resident of a second country. You know, if you can avoid that, I think your chances of just keeping your whole situation U.S. centric are probably pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Please, great. And, and what we we recommend if people have the choice of where to live is to choose a, a territorial tax country where they don't have to uh, report what they have their holdings and income from abroad. Right. That so would that be might, a good argument for a territorial tax country. It would definitely be a good argument for it. Right. So in a Latin American context, that might mean don't go to Brazil, go to Paraguay or, or Uruguay, where it's a territorial system and you're going to have vastly simplified reporting and this and that. But obviously, for a lot of people, it's inevitable. Maybe they have a job in a foreign country. Maybe they have a... Uh, a significant other and end up starting a family in a foreign country. They just well, like there, it. There you yeah. go, right there. I mean, doesn't a job, and I'm not, I'm not sure the answer is necessarily yes, but it seems to me that having a job in a foreign country is going to necessitate bank accounts and, you know, and, and all that stuff, isn't it? Probably at least one to get paid, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you're talking about, you know, basically creating firewalls, you know, sort of a, I have this image in my head as you describe this of a bunch of firewalls, right? You know, so we decide that we know the U.S. has the worst reporting rules of all, so we keep all our assets in the U.S. to avoid that problem. Yeah. All right. So, so I think we know that it works for the digital nomad mostly for a while. Dividing lines become the tax resident of another country. You know, how long can you continue? Uh, you know, being outside the sort yeah. of... Legal. And I, I think if you're living in a territorial tax country, you could basically keep everything in the U.S. forever and have, uh, and just, you know, have have everything in the U.S. and keep a pretty minimal presence in, in the adopted territorial tax country. So I think that that's a pretty simple situation. If you're, you're, if right, you're not working, if you're not, you mean, if you're... If you're not working. But you're not employed. Right, right, right. Or even if you just have one or two things going on, it's still not too, too bad. But it's when you're in a, a full-out, quote-unquote, well, like real yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, residency-based taxation country, like Canada. Always or, creates yeah. problems, okay? Yeah. Always. In fact, you know, I would go so far as to say this. It's worldwide taxation that causes all the tax complexity, including the treaties, right? Yeah. Because what is worldwide taxation other than the claim of one country you know, to tax the income earned by one of its residents in another country. That's all worldwide taxation is. And then look at and look at what that spawned, right? All these reporting requirements, the whole OECD treaty system. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I don't, you didn't full, it's full out say it this way, but it's not just a reporting issue where the U.S. actually very much disincentivizes you uh operating outside the u.s so they disincentivize foreign earn foreign corporations they disincentivize anything offshore um uh, you know whether it be businesses or assets or uh investments and so it's tough and it, you know what i mean let's just say someone's living in mexico and they get the opportunity to invest in a you know a coffee plant or something uh like a, a coffee company and it's it's almost like I don't even want to do it because it's just I just know how much of a headache it's going to be. It's like uh, I think to some extent talking about tax all the time is a bit of like it has to be done. Like someone has to take care of it, but it's like a little bit of a 
lame discussion because at least if you're getting taxed, that means you're earning and you're making good money. But I think another aspect of how it can be interesting for U.S. citizens abroad is just investing abroad. And it, it makes sense to diversify and invest abroad and invest away from the U.S. dollar a little bit. And it's just like, what comes along with that? Like, how complicated is that going to be for me to invest in that Mexican coffee company type well, of thing? Well, it's going to be very complicated if you invest directly, right? But, it, you know, a possible solution would be to use U.S. mutual funds, right? Uh, that, that you know, that invest in non-U.S. companies, you know, this sort of stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, like direct investment where you're very really like buy, very buying, you're buying equity. Obviously, anyone can buy an ETF and those are kind of like world diversified or whatever. But I mean, like really investing in a non-U.S. business or just a, a business that's not U.S. based. You know what I mean? Like uh, you, you establish that life in Italy and your cousin says, hey, can you invest in my coffee or my my pasta? My past manufacturing company, you're just like, I can't. It's going to be too complicated from a U.S. tax perspective. And they're, they're like, bro, like what? Like, you know what I mean? No, that, that, is, that is absolutely 100% correct. Okay. I mean, you know, if you look at, say, the, you know, the Form 54, this, you know, the reporting for that type of investment is on what's called a, uh, an IRS Form 5471. It is so intrusive. It is so complicated that, you know, there are courses you can go to like for five days to learn how to fill out this form. All right, it, it is simply over the top. And the whole purpose of it is to track, you know, income that's being earned outside the United States for the purposes of present and future U.S. taxation. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it's a big, big problem. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I noticed uh, before our discussion, uh, I looked at your Twitter feed, and one of them, um, I don't know, I think you were asking about renouncing U.S. citizenship or something. There was something about renouncing U.S. citizenship. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed was there were like 18 or 20 replies, and I think the vast majority were saying, no, no, I'd never renounce U.S. citizenship. This isn't a problem, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Well, it's pretty clear to me that none of those people have actually have actually attempted you know, to have a financial life that's outside the United States. Because if they had, uh, they wouldn't be so dismissive of it at all. In fact, uh, you know, the main reason that people renounce U.S. citizenship is because U.S. citizenship is a disability when it comes to uh, doing anything financial outside the United States. Mm -hmm. And so what can people do if they do have opportunities for international investments? Would you say to maybe wrap that in a U.S. LLC? Could that combat things a little bit? I don't know about an LLC. I, well, okay, there's three things that a U.S. citizen can invest in that are, are not going to create, I'll call it ancillary problems, Okay. Uh, the first is uh, just anything that's interest, interest bearing, right? Okay, which is, is not very exciting, but at least it's something. Uh, the second are individual shares, individual shares of uh, non-U.S. corporations that are just sort of traded, you know, on the market, whatever. 
Uh, and the third is, uh, is real estate. Okay. Uh, now those three things generally will allow one to, um, invest outside the United States and just treat the stuff mostly from an income perspective. Okay. Without a bunch of additional reporting. Um, but anything that involves in, in creating a corporation or a trust, you know, there are many countries where they use business trusts, et cetera, mm -hmm. is not impossible. Okay, there's no law that prohibit, prohibits anybody from doing any of this stuff, right? But is opening the door to massive, massive U.S. tax compliance problems. And, um, you know, in many cases, it's just not worth it. I mean, an American who sets up a business abroad, you know, you want to go to Mexico, set up a coffee shop, or a dry cleaning business, or even the most pedestrian. Right, thing, right. You know, is you know, is going to have uh, possible difficulties. I mean, if you want to set it up under your own name, so it just, you know, so there's no entity creation, that's fine. Um, but it's tough. It's tough. I mean, you know, you got a ball and chain on you. So what's the best way to do it if it's just inevitable? I just have to open that local mechanic shop or whatever it, it is. Do it under the name of Vance. So you do it. Is it better to do? Yeah. So I guess those are the, is I guess the decision set is in your own name, US LLC or local LLC. I've heard local LLCs are, are usually a nightmare. So it's, Okay, by local, you mean foreign to the U.S. Yeah, like okay. local That's to the country. That's all you need to know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all you need to know. Any involvement with a foreign entity is going to get you into, you know, all kinds of issues. Maybe they can be resolved easily. But, you know, I don't know if you like having lawyers and accountants in your life. I personally don't. All right. <laughs> Um, you know, and I think few people do, but it's going to open the door to that, okay? Uh, entity means something separate from you as an individual. If you do your stuff as an individual, you know, you're minimizing the chances of problems, and that's what I would do, okay? Even if even if it's marginally uh, more, more expensive from a tax point of view uh, in, in that other country. Um. You know, I mean, a U.S. LLC, I, I don't know this. I don't think that's necessarily a separate entity. I'm not entirely up on that. But I doubt that's going to, I doubt that's going to, well, let me see. So you've got a, all right, so the question becomes, can you have a U.S. separate entity? Well, maybe you set up a U.S. corporation, a U.S.-based corporation to run that business you know, outside the United mm -hmm. States. But then, of course, the question becomes, what's the, what's the view of the other country on that? Um, I am not a fan of what I'll call entity creation. In fact, I can't stand it. All right, every time you bring a new entity into the world, corporation or trust, you're creating a tax compliance requirement somewhere. Mm -hmm. And I, I can't stand that stuff, okay? I mean, I think you want simplicity, um, I think you're going to have fewer options if you leave the United States. But generally speaking, uh, 
everything in your own name, no overlays of entities, okay? Set up a business as a proprietorship, invest in individual shares, interest-bearing documents, you know, and real estate if held in your own names, you know, generally okay. Okay. And that's far from nothing, okay? It's far from nothing. Uh, I mean, it's not ideal either, but but look at it this way. I mean, a lot of people like to create separate business entities, partly for reasons of limited liability, partly just because they think it's fun to do so. I don't think it's fun to do so because you're just creating new responsibilities. I do think the limited liability thing, though, uh, is a factor. Right. And then, of course, though, there's another, there's another layer to this. And that is that the fact that it is a, um, a foreign entity from a U.S. tax point of view does not necessarily mean you don't have the option to treat it as though it's not from a U.S. tax point of view. These are called disregarded entities. And that may or may not be possible as well. But all somebody would have to do is listen to this for 10 minutes and think, I don't want any part of this. Yeah, it definitely sounds intimidating. Well, it's not so much that it's intimidating. It's it's a combination of, you know, not being able to fully understand it. And, and, and uh, you know, and by the way, that if you have a foreign corporation on the U.S. point of view, there are only some countries and some types of corporations where you have the option of treating them as disregarded. For example, Canadian-controlled private corporations are all deemed what are called per se corporations with one or two exceptions. So, I mean, it even depends what country you're in. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, you know, if you want to keep us citizenship and if you want to, you know, live outside the United States and do this stuff, I think you need to strive for simplicity. Okay. As simple as possible. And, you know, you're probably going to have to get used to liking lawyers and accountants if this is possible. Yeah, and one thing I've found in my experience doing this is that it's very difficult to find one lawyer or one group or one accountant that can cover your holistic situation, both in the U.S. and in your adopted country. Yeah. So you often have to have sort of two accountants and then it's it's tough to have them work on the same strategy because they don't understand. They don't understand. They don't understand. From the so, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there needs to be, uh, I don't know, some education in the American uh, accounting schools or something of, of getting people to sort of specialize more in international uh accounting and and having people uh being able to do both sides of it because yeah it's very tough to have someone one person do the canadian side and then one person do the american side and how do these things really square up it's 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 definitely a well, tough that's, thing that's right you know and you get people paying more tax than they should i mean you know i mean i think you know if you're looking for general principles i'll give you you know some of my well, they're thoughts. They're also opinions. So, you know, people don't like it. I'm not claiming it's right. Um, but my first principle that I believe in is that you will never get the best professional advice from advisors inside the United States. 
kind of because for them, almost all of them, this is a niche area, and the only way to understand it is to actually live it, okay, which they don't or haven't. So that's point number one. The second thing is that, you know, if you're just a regular guy, um, you know, what you want to, you, you want to find a, a tax person, accountant, whatever, a tax person. Remember, accountants are not necessarily tax advisors, but you need somebody mm. who specializes in dual tax residency in that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, there are people, I, I mean, I know a lot of them, right? I mean, Toronto's probably where I live is probably, uh, you know, the place where you're going to get the best U.S. Canada tax advice, I, I think certainly in the world. Okay. Um, but even here, you know, the number of people who are completely fluent in both the Canadian and the U.S. tax, there aren't that many of them. But, but that's not the problem. The problem is that people don't understand that it should be done under one roof. You know, mm -hmm. they, for some reason, they have no problem, you know, with the assumption that, well, you know, I'll get my taxes done in Canada by one guy. And now I'm going to go to the guy next door who does the U.S. You know, that's a terrible mistake, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I guess as a matter of housekeeping, would you say that you would always do the adopted country tax return first and then the U.S. second to sort of square it up? Or is there any situations where well, I think, not... you know, it's funny you ask me that because I'm working with somebody right now uh, where uh, the person is a Canadian tax resident, but the income sources are in the U.S., right? Um, generally speaking, OK, I think you want to do the one where you're getting, you know, where, where, the, where the income is sourced to, right? With most people in Canada. OK, so let me explain it this way, OK? Um, obviously in part, you're trying to avoid double taxation, right? Yes, the answer is yes, for sure. Okay, you're trying to avoid double taxation. So there are different ways of avoiding double taxation, but the, the best long-run way of avoiding double taxation is to use foreign tax credits, right? In other words, let's say you have somebody in Canada, you know, a, a dual citizen in Canada, living in Canada, um, you want to avoid the double tax. So what you're going to do if you're working in Canada or whatever is you would want to determine how much Canadian tax you paid on your income in Canada and then use that tax as a credit to offset the U.S. tax, right? All right. So in that case, you would do the Canadian tax first. And that, by the way, as you may, you're, I'm sure you're aware that Americans abroad have an automatic extension until June 15th, right, under a Treasury regulation to file. You're presumably aware of that. Now, you know, I've never seen anything written down what the reason for that is, but I think it's clear that the reason is that in many cases, the tax liability in the non-U.S. country will be necessary to help them do their U.S. taxes properly, right? Okay, so in that situation, Canada, you're probably doing the Canadian taxes first. But mm -hmm. uh, if it's a situation where the vast majority of the income is U.S. source, and this would be, let's imagine somebody who, you know, let, let's say a Canadian citizen, a dual mm -hmm. citizen, somebody born as a dual citizen, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, has their whole professional life in the United States, everything, their pensions, their, you know, this, their, that, come from the United States. And let's say they move to Canada for whatever reason. Or I've actually seen this. They move to Canada for marriage or something, right? You know, later on or down the road, what have you. Well, in that case, their income is a U.S. source. That means the U.S. is going to have the first right of taxation, right? So you would do the U.S. tax return there first, okay, to determine what the U.S. tax was paid because that would be used to offset the Canadian tax, right? Makes sense. Okay. So, I mean, you know, it's it dependent on the circumstances. But, yeah. but what I really think is this. I just don't understand why it's so hard to convey this point effectively. At least I've failed at it utterly. Is that the type of people who is your target market, the type of people you think about, the type of person you are, right? These types of people need to find tax preparers who not only can do both returns, but can you know give you advice here and there about how to optimize your tax situation. I mean, let me give you an example here, okay? You know, Canada has, you know, these RRSPs, right? And, uh, you know, you're gonna get a tax deduction if you make a contribution, but you can not make contributions for years and you can have a massive uh, room, contribution room, right? That you can make in a year. But I mean, if you um, make a contribution, let's say your income's Canadian, you make a contribution, say $50,000, you know, that's going to be a deduction. I mean, obviously, you're, you're going to use this deduction for Canadian tax purposes. But, you know, if you do that in a single year, what's going to happen is you're not going to pay enough tax to offset the U.S. taxation, right, on that income. Right, you see what I'm saying? So you need somebody, you know, who can also operate as sort of a, as a tax financial planner. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, there are people like that around, to be sure. There are people like that around. The good ones are worth their weight in gold, you know, for sure. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I don't know what good they are if people don't understand why they, you know, why they should be using Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I think what I've seen um, just from being at the IMI conference, I, I was at a, uh, the same lunch table with a guy who does uh, U.S. taxes for expats, and he's based in Italy. And um, they sort of structure their their thing as a family office uh, or a wealth management office. And so they take over your whole situation um, and they, you know, they, they sort of get involved in your 401ks and your basically like your whole situation on the U.S. side. And then I think they also take care of maybe that local side in the adopted country. And then that way they're able to provide that uh, strategic insight. Um, I'm sure it's a, you know, that's a high touch service, but as you said, it's, probably worth its weight in gold it is worth its weight in gold okay well it's also more likely to keep you out of the problems you know and create penalties and you know stuff like that because i mean look i personally had i mean i work with people all around the world and, and do so right and so i've had this experience of 
you know, trying to help somebody from a U.S. side, but, you know, wishing I had a better understanding of what this means in this country or that means, you know, et cetera. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there are certain cases where, I, you know, I'm probably a good advisor, you know, uh, for them. Uh, but I could be a better advisor, you know, if I were completely fluent in the tax system of that other country, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is, you know, an extremely important thing. Um extremely important because taxation is no longer really about taxation. It's about life planning. It's about retirement planning. It's about uh, creating, uh, you know, investments that are more or less advantageous from tax point of view. And you have to be able to understand all relevant tax systems when you're doing this. Crazy. And so what does the average person do? Do they just, um, yeah, like, obviously, it's basically impossible to do yourself. You have to have professional support for this. I would say that's true for 90 plus percent of people. Yeah, I would say that's true. Um, Well, I think most of them do nothing because I don't think they realize that, you know, the key thing they should be doing is just what I've tried to describe here, right? Um, they suffer. You know, they <laughs> suffer from, you know, mistakes in tax returns, from tax planning that, you know, is not optimal. They probably pay, <laughs> I bet they pay more money uh, by having two separate ones. I bet they do. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you have to. Oddly enough, right? Um, I don't know what they do. They renounce U.S. citizenship. It's what they do because, they, you know, they don't see a way out of this problem. And for a lot of them, there isn't. Well, there's a thing. A lot of the people are just residents in the adopted country. They're not citizens. So they might not have that. That is true. Else. That is true. That is true. Of course. I mean, you know, it kind of assumes that you know, you can renounce U.S. citizenship. I mean, actually, you know, the opportunity that renouncing U.S. citizenship is, I think, an opportunity for a select number of people that, frankly, is priceless. Uh, I mean, it may not be a practical value to a certain demographic. I think largely your, you know, your your uh, digital nomad people. I don't think are at that stage. I mean, particularly if they're wanting to keep their financial life centric in the United States. But, you know, to be clear, everybody sees this from the point of view of their own life circumstances. Try being somebody, you know, somebody trying to retire, uh, you know, living in a country outside the United States as a tax resident of that country. uh, You know, it may not be impossible, but it will be far, far more difficult to manage this stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's definitely not one size fits all. Um, and people, I mean, the people, A, always see this stuff through the circumstances of their life at present, okay, which, you know, which which makes sense, okay. But the other thing they think about taxation, I've noticed, is they think that they understand taxation to be the same as whatever tax return they're most familiar with. 
So, you know, you get these people in Canada. I mean, Canada is high taxes, but it's a simple tax return, okay? You know, the U.S. actually has, has high taxes, too. I don't think it's high as Canada, but it has high taxes. But a, a, a system of complexity that bears no relation to the Canadian thing at all, uh, you know, and, and definitely creates tensions. And another thing that just came to mind on this, and I, you know, I haven't really sorted out my thinking on this, but if it can be sorted out, um, but you know, there's all this emphasis in the, the digital nomad world, right? We'll call them the, the foreigner and income exclusion types. Okay, you know, there's all this, uh, you know, they have to worry about the self-employment tax, right? So you, you know, you move to say Mexico and you make your 112,000 US dollars and you say, wow, this is great, it's all tax free. But you do have a self-employment tax, right? Now, reflexively, people want to avoid that, reflexively. Uh, but I remember saying this in the podcast we did earlier. I'm not sure this is the right answer for everybody, but there is a certain group of people who I think might be better off to pay that self-employment tax to pay into Social Security. You know, to start creating that because, uh, you know, U.S. Social Security is, in terms of, you know, uh, government pension plans, about as good as it gets. And it's, it's kind of one or the other, right? Like you kind of have to decide if you want the Canadian pension or the U.S. pension, if you're like a dual citizen or or whatever, resident of one citizen. You know, I'm not entirely sure I know the answer to that. I was in, last week I was talking to a guy about this, and uh, I, I'm going to explore this further with him. It's just a long-term sort of planning thing. He was telling me, he was describing to me how he had organized all these things to um, – you know, maximize chances for both, right? But, I mean, he's in the UK. This is an interesting topic. I'll know more about it, you know, within the next while, but or have thought more about it, maybe not know more about it, but we'll have thought more about it. But I'm not sure it is one of them. Yeah. I, like, it's like, do you get both in full, or maybe there's, like, an offset, you know what I mean, where it's like... Well, the U.S. has, the US has a windfall elimination provision, right? Was that... Well, it means that uh, if you're getting U.S. Social Security and you're entitled to Social Security in another country, they're going to reduce the U.S. Social Security. Would you say that the Canadian Social Security or pension is, is typically higher? Absolutely not. I think no. U.S. Social Security is totally superior. Really? I don't even think, I don't even think it's comparable. I mean, partly because... Uh, you know, there's some amazing things about U.S. Social Security, right? A spouse, you know, can get Social Security because you get, you know, so so an American citizen mm -hmm. gets, you know, whatever amount of Social Security. All right. It's not bad at all. I mean, certainly the Canadian equivalent is certainly not higher. But, and it's generally lower, I think. But what's amazing about the U.S. system is how spouses, you know, the spouses will get benefits. You know, children get benefits in certain circumstances. Right, even after you pass away, I think. Uh, yeah, I think, I, th I think that's right. And, but, but what's interesting is, I mean, let's say you've got, 
you know, you're married to somebody for 10 years, you're divorced and you're not remarried, you collect off that person's social security without limitation. You know, there's like, say you had four, uh, I don't know how anybody could possibly navigate life like this, but let's imagine you had four spouses, okay? Um, how did you know? Oh, is that you? Okay. <laughs> uh, anyway. Sorry, please continue. No, no wonder you're spending your time in Mexico. All right. <laughs> uh, in any case, yeah. You know, whether it's four, whether it's five, or, you know, whether it's two, right? The point is that there's no limit on the number of spouses, I believe, and collect on that. So and let's do they have to share it, or do they each No, get... it's not. That's the point. Yeah, the pot grows. It's not a fixed pot. It's incredible. It is absolutely unbelievable. So, you know, I mean... It's great for the serial married, married, marrying guy or whatever, or woman or you know, something like that. Anyway, you know, what I'm saying is approximately correct, okay? I mean, I don't have the, the exact info in front of me. But what I will say is that U.S. Social Security um, is generally lucrative, and it has features that are not available under the Canada Pension Plan. And what are those features? Sorry. So we talked about the one, but what are, what are some of the other ones? Well, there are situations where um, children can get can collect benefits because you're entitled to Social Security. Hmm. And that exists, exists in the U.S., but not Canada? Well, I'm just talking about features of, of U.S. Social Security. I don't think these are features of Canada Pension Plan. Okay. Sorry, keep going. But I will say that I know more about U.S. Social Security just because I've sort of been forced to learn about it. But also because I, I, I've just, you know, I I mean, it was so fascinating to learn this stuff that it was easier for me to remember, okay? But the, anyway, so there are children who in certain circumstances can get Social Security. Present spouses, okay, can get it. Past spouses can get it. And there may be more, but I think that's that's enough to make the point here. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I I looked into this once, and I saw that if you pay into one system or another, there's like social security pension treaties among yeah, a, a number of different countries. These are called totalization agreements. Okay. Yeah. So it's like if you pay into one, it counts as paying into the other for like that's why right. paid in. Yeah, so the U.S. has 20-something uh, totalization agreements, Social Security totalization agreements, and there were the countries that you might expect, Canada, U.K., Australia. I mean, you know, the sort of first-world democracies that have this stuff. Now, again, you know, this is highly technical stuff, so I'll just give you the general principle, okay? okay. You know, everybody has to do their own digging. But the, the purpose of the totalization agreement is to help the kind of person who, let's say they're a U.S. person and they work abroad, you know, for outside the United States for some number of years. And if the effect of that is that they wouldn't be able to get, you know, Social Security in either country, right, because it's, uh, you know, two different countries, they total the years, hence the word totalization. 
they total the years worked in both countries so that you can get benefits in one country. So, you know, say you work 10 years, 20, say 15 years in the United States, and then you move and work 15 years in Canada, you know, or something. Mm -hmm. You can total mm -hmm. the years yep. back in the United States to be able to get your U.S. Social Security. Mm -hmm. And so it counts. So it'll count as 30 years total. Uh, I believe that's right. That's the print. That's the governing principle. Okay. Yeah. I presume that it washes out in that way. Okay. But again, you know, being really honest here. Okay. Have you ever tried to read this stuff? I did once just to check. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's dense. I'm sure it's dense. It is. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, these are, sort of you know issues that you need to explore the at the relevant time but my point is this okay that and i may be wrong on this or maybe wrong in certain circumstances but i do not think that paying the self-employment tax for the people in your ecosystem right you know that's just mainly the digital nomad types i don't think it's necessarily a bad idea at all Mm hmm. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. It's like, you know, what? because it's whatever it is, 6.5% or actually even higher. No, it's, well, like, uh, it's 15%. It's 15. Right. right, right. Because if you're employed, because if you're employed, you pay 7.5 and the employer pays the other half. No, that's, that's you, exactly right. But look but at if it, you're self-employed. Yeah, yeah. So ahead. you go to another country, you're self-employed, you're running your life through the foreign earned income exclusion. You know, so you're paying a 15% tax, which may not feel good, but I'm not sure it's the end of the world because what you are doing is contributing towards, you know, towards that. Your retirement. Yeah. yeah. It's like the only tax where you get something out of it. Well, you know, I've got to tell you that, uh, I mean, if you look at Social Security over the last few years, the payments have gone up, indexed to inflation. What investment uh, guarantees that? Now, I will tell you something here, okay? All right. So I'm not one of your young digital nomad types, okay, as you probably know. But I can also tell you that if I were in my 20s and somebody, and I, and I heard what I just said when I was in my 20s, I would have said this guy is completely out of his mind. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, to pay this, this self-employment tax, you know, when I don't have to, right? Well... What's that Mark Twain saying? Remember the Mark Twain thing? When I was 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have him around. But when I turned 21, I was just amazed at how much my father had learned in seven years. <laughs> in other words, I was wrong, okay? You know, the way I was thinking then. Mm -hmm. And that's not the yeah. only So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've definitely heard uh, both sides of it. People say, oh, no, I want the money and I can compound it and if whatever. If they won't compound it, they won't compound it. This is the thing, okay, that, you know, there are a certain number of people who have the investment skills and the discipline to do that. Most don't. Yeah. No, I mean, definitely makes sense to to pay into one system. And I guess the other part of it is like, don't accidentally pay into two systems, right? 
Um, don't accidentally pay into two. I don't know what the answer to that is. How do you pay into two systems? Like maybe you have income streams in both countries and they're, they're both taking like self-employment. Because there's a limit, right? Like it's like after you pay into it, something, I forget what it is, like 100K a year, then you don't, then then it goes away in the US. Um, I believe there are limits. There certainly are in Canada. I believe there are limits. That's right. Yeah, there are limits. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I, don't know. I mean, I'm just making a very, very narrow point here. And yeah, that is that uh, I think it's wrong to, and I think you agree with me. Okay, that yeah. it is wrong to presumptively see Social Security payments, the self-employment tax, as being a waste of you know, as being something to avoid. It may be something to embrace for a certain type of person. Cool. Well, we probably hammered well, on that well, one enough. I'm probably going to get myself fired from your podcast for the last statement. But, but I actually, I mean, it depends. People are different, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think we covered some good ground on this one. Um, <laughs> we we definitely learned things that are hairy, but hopefully we're, we've introduced some uh, solutions or or uh, things to think about as well. Uh, obviously, we could go on forever about this stuff. Do you think there's any like big overarching topics or or themes that we should mention while uh, while we're still talking about this on the podcast? As it relates to, um, I guess, uh, U.S. citizens, um, you know, moving well, their economic center of gravity abroad and, and dealing with. Uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's completely a stage of life. A type of thing. I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, for somebody who sees themselves as, right, you know, their identity is tied into being a digital nomad, but they're going to do it as a U.S. citizen, and they're going to avoid tax residency in another country. I, I think that's a no-brainer. Sure, keep your stuff U.S.-centric. Yep. Your life will be a lot easier, you know, but life changes, you know. Uh, I mean... You know, I'll tell you, just, I mean, let's say that the digital nomad, you know, settles down, marries somebody who's a resident citizen of the country. Yep. Do you think the discussion, I want to keep all my assets and money in the United States, do you think that would go over very well in a marriage? Um, yeah, I think that should be fine. Yeah, it might be okay. Well, you're a different generation. See, because I'm like, I'm like right near it, as as I said uh, at the beginning of uh, this recording, where uh, I've been traveling five plus years consecutively, no lease, backpack, Airbnbs, five plus years, and so I'm definitely getting to the point where I want to, at very least, get a get a you know a a proper twelve month lease or or buy a property and live definitely live outside the United States. Uh, probably in Latin America. Uh, right. And so these are, these are things that I'm actively thinking about. And you think about, you know, what happens when you start having a couple of kids and maybe they're going to school in that adopted country and, and all the kind of implications that we've been talking about. And so I've, I've been kind of working through in my mind, a lot of the things we're talking about on this episode in terms of, okay, so do you keep your economic center of life in the States, you basically keep your money there, and then you just kind of draw upon it as you need it. And, 
Maybe uh, maybe the kid's private school will take an international wire transfer from uh, Chase, New York, and <laughs> all this stuff. So it's, probably, it's interesting. probably will. I mean, the good thing about yeah. money is most people will always take it, right? I mean, the problem <laughs> is not, I think, necessarily the payments. The problem not, is, yeah. you know, just interacting with, you know, the United States or Canada. I mean, you look, the United States, Canada, and probably France, I would call the tax axis of evil. <laughs> I mean, you know, it doesn't get worse. It's impossible. All right. Well, maybe not impossible, but difficult. I mean, they're up there. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not one size fits all. You know, it sounds to me like you should have a blog and you can call it My Tax Residency Journey. You know, the evolution from U.S. tax residence only to something else, you know see how it actually works yeah well we have a bunch of telegram groups actually uh for um for expats and i was almost thinking about spinning one up specifically for u.s citizens abroad because just so many uh issues that are really specific to americans that no one else wants to hear about but for us they're like super important um and i think you've actually done a very good job of that you kind of made that your focus just you know services and content for for americans abroad because it's a specific niche but obviously there's you know 350 million of us and we uh we have our concerns and it's very real and it's something that we have to deal with every year yeah i think that's right i mean there are uh, you know there are blogs and facebook groups you know that discuss this stuff but the one of the problems with them is that they're largely um uh the blind leading the blind right it's incomplete at best. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're dangerous. But, you know, hey, uh, you know, U.S. citizens are they're, they're just different. That's all. Yeah. Fact, I think I've always thought that, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the Asian Airlines Thai Airways should come out with a new class of service called American class. That will, that will give you a printout of exactly how much time was spent in U.S. airspace and you know, etc. Right. That's it's funny. So, it's so ridiculous. It is really ridiculous. That's very funny. Well, it's it is funny. The problem is there's a lot of truth to this. I mean, I should send you a uh, something I wrote about uh, the problem of uh, U.S. citizens working on ships, cruise ships. I haven't heard this one. I don't even. You know what? I I'll send it to you. Okay. She may even remind me. I have to find it. But I mean, I didn't even know this. I was, you know, until I was kind of forced to get into this. But well, the bottom line is this, okay, that international waters, a cruise ship that's in international waters is not in a foreign country, okay? Right. Because it's not in a foreign country, you can't get foreign tax credits. You can't have the foreign earned income exclusion. So guess what? It guarantees me subject to double taxation. How's it double though? Who else is taxing it other than the states? Your country of tax residents. Uh, okay. Same thing for planes. Remember this, okay? You're you're apparently a dual citizen or, or you're a US citizen. Hey, remember this. Yeah. That if you're in international airspace, you better not be doing any work. <laughs> in fact, you get pictures of yourself not working. And if you're watching a movie, you make sure it's not business related. You want to watch uh, 
the Wizard of Oz or the Sound of Music or something. Got it, got it. So, yeah, when I'm in my yacht on international waters. Okay. Hey, uh, I know you probably want to get wrapping up. I do want to squeeze in one uh, self-interested question that applies to U.S. citizens abroad. Um, so we all know the foreigner and income exclusion, less than 30 days in the States uh, for the, uh, the the physical presence test. But then there's also the bona fide residence test, right? Where, where if you're a bona fide resident of another country, your center of life in another country, blah, blah, blah. You can actually spend potentially more than 30 days a year in the States while still claiming the FEIE. Do you have any insight into that in terms of the, um, uh, you know, claiming the, the bona fide residence test? Um in, in order to spend more time in the States per year. I've heard from certain sources like Nomad Capitalist, where if you're truly like a bona fide resident of somewhere else, you could maybe spend up to three or four months in the States per year and still claim the FEIE. Yeah, yeah, you need a tax home, I think. Let me just pull up the statute. Give me a second, okay? Okay, oh God. Internal Revenue Code. I'm already sitting down. So if I fall asleep, it's okay. Let's see here. So this is 911. All right. So this is governed by Section 911 of the Internal Revenue Code. Citizens or residents living abroad. I mean, it sounds so, so good. Living abroad, right? Uh, living in paradise. Yeah, right. At the election of individual. <laughs> okay, hold on. Yep, I was right. Okay, how about that? Okay, so here's what you want to remember. Section 911, paragraph D, okay. as in small d, defines a qualified individual. All right, so the term qualified means that his tax home is in a foreign country. So you have to be, you have to have a tax home, okay? That's that's the first point. Yep. And uh, that means where you go to work from, sort of thing. And you have to be a bona fide resident. Yep. So it seems to me the key is okay. You need to have a, a tax home, and that's also defined in there. So assuming tax home, then bona fide resident should get you there, okay? Um, now the question is, do you have to have a legal, you don't have to be legally tax resident though, interestingly, just a minute, test a bona fide residence. All right, if you tell them you're not a tax resident, you can't have it. Okay, it's starting to get too much here to, you know, to read quickly. Okay, but the answer is, I agree with what No Man Capitalist said, that it is possible, but the, the necessary condition is that you've got to have a tax home. Right. And and so here's what you can do is you can, uh, my understanding, and you know it's not tax advice, but 
you get that tax ID from another country. And uh, another piece of it they said that would be good is if you spend more time in that adopted country where you have the tax ID than the U.S., that's another thing that'll kind of, excuse me, push things in favor of uh, being a bona fide resident of that other country. And then that country where you have that tax ID and where you're a bona fide resident is actually a territorial tax country. So let's just say it's Panama, you're a tax resident in Panama, you spend four or five months of the year in Panama, so you're spending more time there than the US, but you're also not actually paying tax in Panama because it's territorial, but you're there and you have the tax ID, right? There's no requirement. Then, there's no requirement that you pay tax. Okay. Right. Pay tax. Okay. Right. And then and then you can spend, you know, call it two months, three months, something reasonable in the States. And so that's another, this is another benefit of actually becoming a tax resident of a territorial tax country and then maybe spending a little bit of time there is that then you can use that bona fide resident status as a way to spend more than 30 days a year in the U.S. and still claim the FEIE. Yeah, okay, so a couple things here, all right, and I don't want to get too far into this because I, I just don't have enough of this on my fingertips, okay, but the mm -hmm. uh, first point I want to make or suggest is I don't think you have to be a tax resident of the other country. Okay, tax home is not necessarily the same as tax residence. Okay. Number one. Number two, what you should do is, you know, just do a search on the IRS. You know, there's there's the the 2555, the foreign earned income exclusion, mm -hmm. is far more complicated than it looks. Now, um, so you, you're going to look... Do a search on that, but also publication 54, IRS publication 54. We'll give you some information. And there's also a guy who I have talked to once or twice over the years. Hold on a minute. He actually wrote a book. He's a tax preparer in Canada, Panama, foreign earned income exclusion. Um, yeah, I found it. It came right up. Okay. Now, I'm going to give you this. And although this is a plug for this guy's book, it's not really because actually it's too expensive. It's over $200. All right. Um, you do a search on uh, Amazon, foreign earned income exclusion. Now, I'm not vouching for the content of the book. I don't know. I'm just giving you another source here. But there's a guy here named Clinton J. Donnelly, who is, I believe, an enrolled agent. He's a U.S. tax preparer in Panama, who wrote this book. And yep, uh, I see it. You know, okay. There's a Kindle edition for fifty bucks. It's surely worth it. <laughs> you know. Yep. So may maybe check that out a little bit. Okay. So I will I will summarize what I've attempted to say with yes I think what you're describing is possible. All right, but you know exactly what things you need to establish to get there. I'm not going to commit to that, you know, without looking at it a little more deeply. Right. Fair enough. Some something people can take a look at. Yeah, have a look at it. Well, there's all kinds of books on this now. Unbelievable. 
you know, I see on Amazon. So, but remember that books are just written by anybody, right? Yep. You know, so what was it Reagan used to always say to Gorbachev? Trust but verify. Yeah. Trust but verify. Do you have any books? Do you have any published books? Do I have any published books? No. Yeah, have you ever written a book? I got probably got six, seven hundred blog posts on every conceivable topic under the sun. Probably getting an assistant to kind of formulate that into a book. Well, actually, somebody did formulate it into a book. All my articles on tax connections, but I just don't have a book for distribution. It's about six hundred pages of my articles on these topics. There's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of them. I was surprised how many there were. You, you got to understand here that this information is always time sensitive. Okay. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and things change. What you need is a, is a way to think about this stuff. Uh, you know, more than you need. I mean, yeah, you need timely information, but that comes and goes. But the principles of thought do not change. Cool, cool. Well, that's that's probably enough on that for now. Yeah, uh, let, me I guess... you another, let me give you another recommendation. Here, I'll give you a recommendation real quick. It's a friend of mine. Um, Olivia Wagner's 1040 Abroad. Hang on a minute. How can I possibly recommend somebody's book that doesn't include Olivia Wagner? Mistake that is. And for you, Brad. Cool. Yeah, I think I've seen this website. She's in Toronto as well. Oh, you know him? No, no, I think I've seen the site though. Well, hang on a minute. Uh, something about being a worldly citizen. Well, I, I kind of need to get running as well. Uh, it's definitely been really educational. Oh, Plenty, okay, uh, right here. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. U.S. taxes for worldly Americans. <laughs> um, that's, that's me. Yeah, that, that's you. So that, that book is for you. Better hurry up. There's only one on one left. <laughs> well, this is cool because I'll try to get all these guys uh, on the My Latin Life podcast talk to us about uh the do's and don'ts you know what i would do i would get clinton donnelly on your podcast to talk about the foreigner and income exclusion yeah that'd be cool yeah all right so this is a standalone podcast too that we just did yeah, yeah, pretty comprehensive. Okay, so if you want to give any closing thoughts, wrap this one up. Well, I guess, uh, again, John, just thank you for your, your time and expertise. Uh, you know, I hope the audience can appreciate this because there's not too many people that not only can talk about this stuff, but then also do talk about this stuff on an unscripted, kind of off-the-cuff conversation podcast. So hope the audience can appreciate all the free value uh, that John is providing here. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me. Um, thanks for taking the time. 
again, mylatinlife.com. Check us out on Twitter at mylatinlife. Uh, we have a podcast as well, all major podcast players, Spotify, Apple, et cetera. Hopefully that's uh, all linked up in the show notes. And if you're interested in Latin America, living abroad in Latin America, feel free to get in touch with us and, of course, check out our materials. All right. And in closing, with relation to anything I've said today, trust but verify. <laughs> okay. And any, oh, you can find me anyway at citizenshipsolutions.ca or Twitter at expatriation law. Okay. We'll pick it up again soon. Cheers.